Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. When my music became popular, everyone, out of the goodness of their heart, they all wanted to say congrats. I knew statistically and intellectually that artists put songs out, and every once in a while they have a hit. They're lucky if they get one. They're even lucky if they get two. I felt like, well, I'm different. My first one was a hit, so all of mine will be hits now. (laughs) Then each song I put out after that was progressively less and less popular, and I progressively became less and less popular until I was left alone in a million-dollar house in L.A. with an empty schedule and sort of nothing to do. I imagine you attached a little bit of your self-worth to those numbers. Yeah, I touched not only my self-worth, but my self-identity. Who I thought I was, was Mr. Popular, Mr. Successful. I had to redefine how I thought of who I was. And it was the best thing that ever could have happened to me. Which people always say after the fact, but feels really bad at the bottom. (laughs) I think people who work a standard, let's say, day job, I hate to put it that way, but They feel like there's the artist and then there's me. But I think anyone could be an artist in their life by living out bit by bit their beliefs. Yeah, I mean, the biggest art piece you and I are working on is our lives. At the end of the day, that's the big painting. You know, and each day we get to add a color or maybe erase a stroke here and there. I really want to be as mentally tough as possible. This is such an important skill to have for success in life. So if you want to be mentally tougher, you just got to be tougher. How to get lucky? Wake up earlier and make luck happen. You have to get discipline and you have to get freedom. Jocko Willink, one of my favorite people in the world and an ex-guest on this podcast, will show you how with his new book, Discipline Equals Freedom. Discipline Equals Freedom by Jocko Willink. Get it wherever books are sold from St. Martin's Press. I've got Mike Posner here. Mike, welcome. Thank you. So Mike, I don't even know where to introduce you. I'll just say you're an amazing songwriter, singer. Um, you're also now, a, a, or you've probably always been, but a huge YouTube star. One of your songs, I took a pill in Ibiza. Is that how you say it? Ibiza? <laughs> Yeah, that's how I say it. Has there eight, they say it a 850 bit. million views, almost a billion views. Mm. Uh, you've had, I, I don't want to say that's the highlight of your career or anything. <laughs> that's just the latest thing. Um, your, your, your first big hit was uh, Cooler Than Me uh, in 2009. Uh, you've, had, you've done songs, podcasts, books of poetry. You've written hit songs for Justin Bieber, Maroon 5. You've reinvented yourself several times. You've dealt with ups and downs, depressions, failure, success. We're going to talk about all of it. Great. 
But the, actually, one thing I wanted to start with, I love how you took a back, what I'll call a backdoor way to success in your very first release. Mm. So you you were a junior at Duke University. Correct. And you had that first song, uh, was, it, was it the song on the album? You released on iTunes University instead of straight through iTunes. Yeah. And that became, of course, number one on iTunes University because it's going to be much more interesting than any you know, university stuff. Sure. And that kind of propelled you into success. How'd you think of that idea? Well, and, and I just want to interrupt one second before okay, you answer. Sure. I do think, obviously, being a singer and a songwriter, there's so much competition out there. You're clearly amazing. There's a lot of talented and amazing people, and they just give up right away because they think, oh, if they don't go that standard path of like label, tour, hit, whatever, they just give up. And you kind of found this. I, I think. I, I think finding that back doorway is a key to success in many areas of life. So, okay, Annie. Yeah, at the time, it didn't feel like a back door. It just felt like the only door, you know. Um, so I was just. Why did it feel like the only door? Couldn't you have gone to like a label and sure, I could have. I, 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 mean, I actually think I did maybe the summer before as a as a producer with like what we call like a beat CD. So I would I would make these instrumental beds for rappers or R and B singers to sing on, and I'd get meetings with like a lower level person at record labels and playing my stuff, and they'd say thank you for coming in, etc. And um, until you know, and, and labels are good at taking fires that have already started and pouring gasoline on them. They're not so good at starting fires. That's true for many industries. So like mm -hmm. publishers might publish a lot of books but they'll definitely throw the fire on the books that really have... They'll tell everybody the same thing. We're going to throw our whole marketing muscle behind yeah, you, but they'll really put the marketing on, behind the, the big ones. And it's kind of on you to get that that fire started. So that's what I was doing. And, and Yeah, I was, a, I was a student at Duke University. I had, um, you know, like a $200 microphone in my dorm room and software that I had stolen off the internet and um, recorded uh, what we call a mixtape. A mixtape is... Um, basically a free album in hip hop culture, um, and it, it a lot of times it involves your music and it can involve remixes of existing songs. So I, you did like a, a Beyonce remix on that first one, correct? Yeah, Beyonce remix. I think did I you did need to buy the rights. No, it? that's the thing about mixtapes is they're um, they're free, and, and at the time, I mean, it's come, become a little dicier now. But at the time, like the culture was, you just made this thing for free and put it on the internet, and you would leverage. Your relationships so you could get features like you know um most notably on my first mixtape there's a rapper who's who's become a very prominent rapper now his name is big sean yeah and he was on my mixtape three times and none of these guys get paid they just like we're friends and then you know when i'm doing my mixtape you'll do a verse type of thing and um you know it's, you don't clear anything <laughs> so um I I recorded this this little project in my dorm room and I I put it online and and my music was sort of garnering this attention in like the niche uh, hip hop community on like hip hop blogs and and things like that so I knew I knew my stuff would kind of get heard that way but I was noticing that like the the prissy white girls at Duke University also somehow impossibly were into my music too like because i feel like there's it's not like pure 
hip hop, even cooler than me. It's got definitely got it's the melodic beat and hip hop yeah. feel. But there's kind of yeah, melodic and there's a there's a ballad sort of feel in the lyrics. Mm, sure. You know, I could see how it's relatable depending on where you're connecting with it. Yeah. I w- you know, at the time I was really I had rap. I started rapping when I was eight and by this time I was about twenty. And I don't know why, but I decided to start singing my raps. So that's basically what my music at that time sounded like. It was like melodic hip hop. Um, and so I put this thing out and, and you know, it's, it's getting on the blogs, etc. But I realized that the girls at my school, wouldn't, they wouldn't go to those blogs. And they weren't going to be able to hear my music or get it on their computer, their iPod, unless I had it in a more universal place. And I wasn't the first one to do it, but um, I had seen other bands get their albums on iTunes U, which was this this arm of iTunes set up for professors to post their lectures for free. And I found out who ran the iTunes U department at Duke. He happened to be from my hometown, Southfield, Michigan, Todd Stavely. We talked. He said, yeah, I can put your album on there. And so now I had my music in this safe, universal place, but it was free. That was the big thing, James. On iTunes U, it's free. And at the time, everyone was pirating everything, especially in colleges. We had good internet. So like, I remember stealing Kanye's album, Graduation, a week before it came out. So I knew no one was going to pay for my music because... No one knew who the hell I was. And so getting on iTunes in this safe place, but also it being free was... A, was um, when you say safe place, you, what do you mean by that? Like it, like the, the alternative for these blogs was you would click a Z-Share link. And at the time, I don't think, no, if they have Z-Share link, but there was like, you'd click the link and then all these ads would pop up and mm. it'd be like, it's kind of something tricking you to click somewhere else and you'd kind of have to find where right. the actual download link was and you'd have to right click it and hit save like link as type of thing. So it was, it was just like kind of hard and confusing and didn't seem like, yeah, it didn't seem like sa- as safe as iTunes or like as clean as iTunes. Yeah, so... so but, it was, but it was important that it was in both places for me. But, but iTunes, you kind of... It's almost as if like it lends the legitimacy of Apple, you know, to the <laughs> songs. Even though you're not on the standard iTunes, iTunes, you're all, hey, I'm on iTunes. Yeah, it's iTunes. Uh-huh. You and people were finding it there. Yeah. It's, it's a it's a discovery mechanism. People don't go to the blogs unless you're a huge fan, but everyone goes to iTunes to shop. Right, right. And and we did by the time I did a, a second mixtape, I put on there and it got taken down. Oh, they were like, no more music. Well, it's, they're like, it's not really educational but could you, material. Could you just put it on iTunes then or you needed like, like a label? Well, I put my albums on iTunes now, but I had I made another mixtape, which wasn't cleared, had features and remixes of people who I hadn't paid, et cetera, like did a favor or, you know, a remix of a song, someone else's song that I hadn't talked to. And so that I can put on regular iTunes unless I sort all that out. And so, so my albums, everything is sorted. Once, once you were on iTunes, you though, how did people then? Of course, other, like you mentioned, other people were putting on iTunes. You, you, it was a breakout album on iTunes. You, it hit number one for the whole iTunes. You, how did you get it known, or were people sharing it, or how? Did, what do you think was the reason why it spread? Sure, good question, and that that goes back to to starting the fire, right? It's like um, you can tell as many people you want about something that isn't good and it 
it doesn't really matter. You know, <laughs> they're not going to tell anyone else. So I think the real unsexy answer to your question is um, I had been making music 12 years at this point, and I, I stunk pretty bad, you know, the first 10 of them. Huh. And I spent, you know, that first decade, you know, the first two years was just getting used to my hearing my own voice recorded because it sounded so different than, I don't know if you experienced this, the first time you record your voice sounds different than it does in your I, head. I have yet to listen to one of my podcasts. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for that reason. So that would that took like two years, you know, maybe ages eight to ten. You know? But this is an interesting thing though, like, so, so, and this is a, a common thing that I hear on here is that everybody goes through that. So even, even I mean, you certainly started with mm. probably two things, a love for music, obviously, or you wouldn't have done it at the age of eight. Like why? No one's going to force you to do uh, rap music at the mm. age of eight. Uh, uh, but you also probably had some, some talent, but it required, like you said, 10 years, 12 years of developing skills to, to launch that talent. Like, what what percent do you think is talent? What percent do you think is skill development? Great question. It's never been posed to me that way. And I'm so glad that you pose it that way. I would say 20% talent, 80% skill development. And the talent, I wonder if the talent and the love of it feed off of each other. Like if you didn't have the talent, maybe you wouldn't love it. And if you didn't love it, maybe you wouldn't have had the impetus to really develop the talent. Yeah. I mean, here's the, here's the thing. I, you ever, ever have a song pop in your head? Yeah. So it's, I have songs. I, pick pop, a, I, I took a pill and I visa. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes I have songs. I have songs pop in my head too a lot. Sometimes I have songs pop in my head that I have never heard before and no one's ever heard before. So my job is to then get that recorded the way I hear it in my head. So the second part of that is largely skill like you know how many colors on your palette do you have to develop how many relations like if you hear a symphony do you have the relationships and the wherewithal to get the right engineer and the right arranger you know etc a lot of that is skill but the first part of that i'm I, I don't know if if you can learn that to hear something in your head so that's really interesting so so because i think also you skipped a valley of skills also required um which is you hear something in your head then you have to know uh, what what key was that that to even write <laughs> down the music, and then what instruments should I mm -hmm. use, and which which parts should be sung, and which parts should be played, right, and right. you know, and you've had in your career you've had various um, feelings about how um, strong the lyrics should be, and uh, versus the the other instruments, and so it's kind of like you have to develop all these sub skills. Like yeah. maybe, maybe there's like thirty or forty sub skills to a actually lot. get out of yeah. your head into it's a piece a of paper. Yeah. And and to be clear, it's not usually not a full song, right? It pops in my head. A lot of times it's like a melody or a chorus or something like that and you have to fill in the rest. So that again is like you have a skill set to like kind of fill in the gaps around this this spark. And and also me. clearly you're a songwriter, like you've written songs for other people like even Justin Bieber and Rune Pie, we already mentioned, but but You've written a whole whole range of songs. You've written a, a book of poetry. There's you have a very strong relationship with words and 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 the words in these songs. But you also, uh, how involved are you in? Like you just said, you hear something in your head, that's relating to the the melody and the actual song itself. Often I feel that's disconnected. That there's a songwriter and then there's 
the person who puts it into a song. Mm-hmm. But you're both. Yeah, most of the time. Like you said, sometimes someone else will sing it. Yeah. Um, and well, then there's the singing it and the performing it. Yeah. Yeah. So I really, you know, the problem is sometimes when you write songs, and I spent a few years of my life trying to be like a writer and a producer and not an artist. And I found it very stifling because I write a lyric like, I took a pill in Ibiza to show Avicii I was cool. Well, who's going to sing that except me? Because no one else did it but me. So I I tend to, if on one side of a spectrum is open-ended and um, applicable to all, and on the other side is like specific and honest, I'd fall... I'd, tend to fall on the specific honest side what what do you mean by that meaning my lyrics will be like very specific to my life and someone else while they might be a great singer and they might actually love the song is not like justin bieber was not going to sing that because it doesn't make any sense like he didn't live that like you know what i mean it doesn't make any sense for him to sing that so in those years where i was trying to be a writer i found a lot i just writing music that's just staying on my laptop because no one else is going to put on their album and that's why i like being an artist because I get to, I mean, I get to create. It's it's incredible. There's the, these little universes, and and most of life is not like that. You can't make it how you want. But in my music, I can turn, I can put a trumpet, and then I get to decide how li- loud the trumpet is, and which frequencies are EQ'd out, and if I put a phaser or a flange effect on it or an echo effect, like I, it's my world. And I get to do it exactly how I want, and I love it. And so, there's other people that help me, but at the end of the day, it's like when I'm doing an album, I'm doing an album, and I get to create something that didn't exist before. I mean, I'm sure like a lot of people are probably listening to this and saying, "Oh, I wish that was me," because they're sitting. You know, uh, let's say the average job people have, they're they're they they took because of those kind of the standard path of uh, of living in this world and paying the bills and mm-hmm. so on and they never got a chance for whatever reason to discover discover what they thought their talents were and you and we'll get into it but you have you have certainly had your ups and downs since that first success but I'm really curious about that initial spark of of the, that lit the fire yeah. and like how do you think like obviously you you kept pursuing from 8 to 20 this passion you had was there anything that wanted to slow you down or were, when you were in school, were your friends and, and teachers encouraging and your parents encouraging? Yeah, uh, I I thought I was ready the whole time. Like when I thought, when I was 10, I thought I was the best rapper. I, yeah, I thought I was going to get signed when, at like 11 and be a famous kid, white rapper. Um, Who were your favorite rappers then? Ooh, then mm, because at that at, moment, at the very beginning, my favorite rappers were like DMX and Mystical. Then shortly thereafter, I transferred to like more, I guess you would call it, for lack of a better term, conscious rap. Some of the people are on the walls of the studio that, re- that recorded here. It's like Big L was on this wall. Um, Nas was was one of my favorites. Um, actually, my favorite for a while. The Roots, uh, Jay Dilla, Talib Kweli, um, guys like that. And to answer your question, I had, when I first first started rapping, I had some older cousins that rapped, 
um, Tulsi Anderson, who's MC, underground MC, great MC in Seattle, and Eli Sweet in Atlanta. And they were so encouraging. You know, like I'd, I'd type these raps out on like Microsoft Word. It was very nerdy and I'd print would, them out. And Would like, you ever, uh, like would they ever use any of the raps that you typed out? Did you consider No, they wouldn't route? use mine. They were terrible, you know. <laughs> but they would give me feedback that was honest but also encouraging. And then I started to battle the other, like if there were other kids at my school that rapped, you know, we'd do what's called a battle. It's basically you like insult each other with rhythm and rhyme. And you make it up on the fly. You make it up on the fly. And I just thought I was the greatest. And I don't, I, can't, I mean, I can't remember ever losing one. So I would do that at school. And and I would get like a, I would get definitely a bump. I like the attention from that for sure. So there was, a, so was, so it was fueling some sense of self-worth. Yeah, I wanted to be noticed. I think like a lot of kids... Um, well, I won't speak for a lot of kids, but for me, I felt small. I was physically small. I didn't grow till I was 18. So I was always, like, if not the shortest kid in my grade one of them. And um, I wanted to be noticed. I wanted to feel, I felt special, but, like, people didn't see how special I was. So it's kind of like a cry, you know, or like a waving of a flag, like, you know, notice me. And was it a way, did in, so you, let's say you're having these battles on the, the playground and then you go back into school, was there a certain respect accorded because you were like kind of, people felt you were rising up in this, in this skill? Yeah, I felt like there was respect. I also felt there was a disrespect too because I was a white person doing hip hop. So I felt a little bit that people thought I was being inauthentic or despite the fact that Eminem comes from Detroit and yeah but still I mean he was an anomaly right mm -hmm. and I mean it still is he's maybe one of the best rappers ever um but now I mean there's 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 many 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 white rappers because of him I guess I was one of him one of the people like that came after him and he paved the way but there was still a stigma to it you know I felt or and and to I think hip hop music in general is like oh you're you're not intelligent because you rap. And that always bothered me too. Because well, I felt like I was, I felt like that didn't fit. Like, no, I'm I'm in all the AP classes and I have straight A's. But I Yeah, you went, you went to Duke University. <laughs> you know, I just have to tell you a story. I went, okay. um, I didn't go to Duke, but when I was in seventh, eighth and ninth grade, I, I don't, you probably know of it. I went to the tip program in the summers at Duke. So the, the, uh, it was a program where seventh graders could take college courses. Mm. So those three summers in a row, I, I went to Duke. So I'm very familiar with. I vaguely remember that, like little geniuses walking around. That was yeah, I, I was the one stupidest one in the program. No, that's how I felt at Duke too, by the way. I felt like I was the smartest kid in my high school. And when I got to Duke, I felt like I was the dumbest kid in my college. Well, uh, maybe we all we all go through that a little, <laughs> but like and, you know, and this is I didn't I I didn't know we we're gonna go in this direction. I'm gonna get back to my uh, some. There's my one ones. question mm -hmm. that I sidestepped that I that's bothering me right now. I didn't Tell answer, me. which was you asked me how people got the word out after it was on iTunes. You 
Can I just say the answer yeah, quickly? Yeah, Because it's, oh, I it's love just going to be, it's me, gonna be in the back of my head the rest <laughs> yeah. of the time. So the so one the short like the we the tangent we went on was like that. I think the music was actually good for the first time in my life after twelve years. So that helped, but I also just made a Facebook event and invited all my friends, and I found. And searched online like the easiest way for my friends to invite all their friends and I sent an email to all my buddies and it was like five quick steps that they could invite all their friends so suddenly the friends I had from high school who were at different colleges were inviting all their friends and you know some of the people liked the stuff I'm sure some of the people hated it but some of the people liked the stuff and then told others and so that's really how I got started I, got, I started getting booked to play at other schools there were YouTube videos of you know, people sing all the words of my songs at my shows, and that's when record labels like, "Oh, there's a fire started. Maybe we should pour some gas on this one because there's there's some sparks flying." You know, um, it reminds me in a weird way of uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> the book, and I'll tell you how. Okay, um, you probably I don't know anything about it. So, so, so Fifty Shades of Grey is uh, maybe one of the best selling books in history now, but it's basically this softcore porn book uh, and it was the number one book on Amazon for like a year uh-huh. sold 100 million copies and um, but originally it was self-published like she just uploaded it to Amazon and she had kind of a social media community of fans of the movie Twilight wow. that she would write fan fiction for she converted that fan fiction into this book uh, and then what happened was Simon I believe it was Simon Schuster noticed it or Random House, one of these big publishing companies noticed it mm-hmm. and then bought yeah. bought it from her after she sold about two hundred fifty thousand copies, yeah. and she said okay, and then it became that became the the you know fan the fire, yeah. and, I, and again I think people need to figure out always whether they're you know with, with their talents and skills sometimes the gatekeepers won't recognize the talent and skill that's why they're a gatekeeper and not an artist yeah. not saying anything bad about them. They wanted to be a gatekeeper. They're doing their job. Yeah, but you know? but sometimes you have to figure out if a gatekeeper might not say yes to you, so you have to figure out another way. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit what what many people do right now. And you were, you were doing it with iTunes U, and then with this Facebook Live event, and figuring out how to how to get through you know people to come to that. Yeah, uh, it, was just, it was just a Facebook event. I don't know if they had Facebook Live. It was just a regular old event, and it had a link to the iTunes U. Oh, good. And so yeah, just. You know, spread the word that that way. And that that first song, or, or the first song that was a hit out of that, "Cooler Than Me," mm-hmm. it's it's very relatable because it's got kind of the dance thing going on, but it's also got uh, you know the lyrics are very beautiful. But even the title, uh, "Cooler Than Me," is self deprecating. Everyone could could sort of every college kid could sort of relate to it. And in two thousand nine, the country was going through a financial crisis. We all felt a little scared. I wonder if in a weird way it kind of tapped into that as well. It could be. It could be. Um, the song actually was was out for two years before it became a air quotes hit. So I, you know, like my little mixtape audience that I garnered had heard it. And then I made another mixtape, like I, I mentioned earlier, and I was doing my little tours. And by then I'd signed to... Um, to J Records it was a subsidiary of Sony and um, I was working on an album and my manager at the time Daniel Weissman said uh, we should put Cooler Than Me out as your single I said it's two years old and everyone's heard it 
he looked at me and he said, no one has heard it. That's so smart, actually. No one's heard it. And we all think we have this audience, yeah. but the reality is there's a 7 billion people <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> no one's heard it. And um, so he hired what's called an independent radio promoter because my my label was doing, what, as we discussed what labels doing, we're going to throw a budget, but we're not really doing anything. Yeah. We're waiting to see what you gonna, you're going to do. And so he hired a, they call it independent radio promoter, we pay this guy maybe, I think, $5,000 in total. And his job is to help get songs on the radio. He has relationships at different radio stations. So he took this remix of Cooler Than Me that a guy in the original Cooler Than Me, I produced and Big Sean's on it. And then this, this really talented producer named Gigamesh in Minnesota did a remix of Cooler Than Me. So this independent, independent radio promoter took the remix to these radio stations. He was in Sacramento, in LA, a lady named Patty Moreno played it and she put in what's called power rotation. So like on a radio stage, they put in like, you know, like they can play it like at nights, very late, but the highest one is power rotation. They're playing it 50 times a week. She put in power rotation. She just, I don't know, she liked it and she was just uh, brave and courageous. And a great market, LA. Uh, And this was in Sacramento. Sacramento. And... So not a great market. And it it just... I think like they do research somehow. I think they like call out and it like reacted really well. And so then I think LA played it. And then my label said, wow, a fire's really started. And then they, okay, okay, this really is your single. And they actually started promoting it. And it became this, this song, big song around the world. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. People look for the shortcut, the hack, but the shortcut is a lie and the hack will never get you there. And if you want to take the easy road, it won't take you to where you want to be. Stronger, smarter, faster, healthier, better, free. There is no easy way. There is only one way and that is the way of discipline, which is why I'm happy to recommend the book by my good friend, Discipline Equals Freedom by Jocko Willink. Jocko is a decorated Navy SEAL co-author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Extreme Ownership, and creator of the number one iTunes business podcast, The Jocko Podcast. His new book, Discipline Equals Freedom, delivers strategies and tactics for conquering weakness, procrastination, and fear. Find your will, find your discipline, and you will find your freedom. Discipline Equals Freedom. Get after it with Jocko Willink. Discipline Equals Freedom is available wherever books are sold from St. Martin's Press. Before we get into kind of like, there's this whole period of what happens next, you kind of go through <laughs> yeah. your 40 days in the desert, almost <laughs> literally. Um, I, I There's two kind of questions I just have for myself, and I don't even know if anyone in the audience is gonna care, but uh, rap, a lot of people think, oh, rap is just someone saying <laughs> rhymes. But it's not like what. What are the, some of the subtle? I think with any difficult skill, there are subtle. There are subtle nuances that most people don't understand or can hear. But like as you were developing a skill, eight, nine, fourteen years old, fifteen years old, what were some of the nuances that were developing for you? Once, once you achieve them, you realize, oh, I needed to learn that skill, and I didn't know that before. Oh, for I mean, hip hop. 
if you're if we're asking about hip hop specifically, and to be clear, rap like, specifically, yeah, rap specifically. To be clear, like I don't, I would consider myself now a singer first, but well, then, yeah. Then by the way, you're not a rapper. a rapper now at all. I would I, say I rap every now and then. I freestyle, and every once in a while, I rap on a song. But yeah, so, but to answer your question, I think I can answer the question. I mean, one is the voice, which we mentioned earlier. I mean, you're you're recording. People are listening to your voice. You know, so part of it you're born with, right? Your voice. Um, two, like it's as simple as what they call breath control. Mm. Like, can you not run out of breath <laughs> when you're rapping? Uh, and then most, See, I wouldn't think that. Most notably is what they call flow. So flow is like the actual rhythm of what you're saying and how it how it sounds and it like how it flows out of your mouth. And hip hop, I believe, was started in 1979, maybe 76. Cool Herc's first DJ. So, I don't know, you do the math on that. Hip hop's been around for a while. It's been a lot of MCs and a lot of raps written. So, to create a flow that is not derivative of someone else's flow, like a new, a new style, a new way the words flow out, and I mean specifically like the rhythm, um, is, is really hard. So, you'll hear like Drake or Kendrick Lamar these guys have they have flows that they created and you'll hear people copy their flow or Big Sean like and he didn't he didn't have it when when I first met him he was he was kind of rapping like other people and I was making beats like other people but now he's at the point where he can create a flow that didn't exist before well so so like let's say in the very beginning it was um very just standard rhyme kind of yeah, flow. Yeah, kind of like yeah. And if you go back early hip hop, you call me sire. Yeah. you know. And like like you have biggies like B I G P O P P O P P A. No info for the D E A. You know, so it's a different rhythm to it. So um, yeah, flow flow is like really 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 important. And then like the the rhyme schemes, like the hip hop I listened to growing up was all about how many, instead of just like the last line, the last syllable of a line rhyming, there'd be what I call complex rhyme schemes. So like even in Cooler Than Me, I did one, which I thought was cool to sing one. So you got designer shades just to hide your face. So in addition to shades and face rhyming, designer and hide your also rhyme so it's like an internal rhyme scheme um and there's a lot of guys who specialize in just that their their songs tend to not make a whole lot of sense but like everything's rhyming you know and then there's a there's mcs like eminem who can make like like seven syllable complex rhymes but he's still making perfect sense and telling a story at the same time that's kind of like the perfect storm and like a really special MC that comes around like once in a decade or something. And I, and I feel also like later on things became a little bit more arrhythmic. So not not always kind of everything falling on the beat. Yeah, I mean what what's special about hip hop now a lot of people complain about they call it mumble rap. You'll hear a lot if you listen to like urban stations hear a lot of guys that aren't doing complex rhymes that it's like can sound very simple but it sounds really good their voices sound good the flow is maybe not super complex but it it just it's like the jazziness is kind of in 
in hip hop right now. Um, the music, there's a lot of musicality to it. And then, and then it seems like, again, like this was a, a skill you developed along with kind of figuring out how to take it from your head to I the forgot page. a big one. I'm sorry to interrupt Tell me. you. Tell me. I, I love you interrupting. Yeah. Usually I interrupt yeah, okay. all the time. You should interrupt <laughs> constantly. Yeah, maybe the biggest one in hip hop is authenticity. So in pop music, I mean, a lot of times, like like we mentioned, someone writes a song, someone else sings it, etc. In hip hop, telling the truth is a big deal. And if if it's found out that you're not telling the truth, it can end your career. Um, and so, like, we saw this with Drake a couple years ago. There was some leak on the internet that basically what happened was there's a leak of someone else singing what sounded like a demo reference of a Drake song. So, like, it, it sounded like some a song someone else did, they sent to Drake, and then he sang it. And it was this huge controversy. Well, that would never be a controversy in pop music because everyone knows Rihanna doesn't write her songs. It's fine. She's a star, amazing singer, amazing performer. Other people write her song, no problem. Frank Sinatra didn't write songs, you know, no problem. In hip hop, it's kind of a problem, you know. And maybe that's changing, but authenticity is a big. Do people believe what you're saying? So, so how do you? I think I think authenticity occurs in a lot of areas of life. So let's say writing. Or I'm gonna take it very base, but even like sales, like you can't sell something you don't believe in. And mm -hmm. to some extent, what you're doing with art is, you know, you you're creating something that you believe in, and you have to sell it to the world yeah. in a weird way mm -hmm. somehow. Not not like oh, buy this piece of art, but you yeah. have to somehow impress upon the world that this is that this is worth having or worth listening to or paying attention to. So how do you tap into that authenticity, or how did how did you, as a twenty year old, start to tap into that authenticity? I think I started telling the truth. Like what know? was what was the before and after? Well, like maybe a lot of um, it's like bragging. A lot of my songs when I was a kid were about how good I was at rapping. So like rapping about rapping, and like you mentioned in Cool, the music self deprecating is true. Like. Like I wasn't good at talking to girls. I'm still not really. You, you, know? wrote, a, you wrote a blog post. I'm interrupting you now. You wrote a blog post. Uh, it's hard to talk to famous girls. Yeah, or maybe and you already were super famous. Whoa, and that. and it's relative. So so maybe re recount that story for a second, just because it's. I feel it's related to cooler than me, even though it was the events were six years. Yeah, later. it's like it's. I always find it so weird and awkward when there's a famous female around and there's always like bodyguards and things around now you know and that sometimes i would act like cold towards them because i felt in some like backwards logic that makes no sense which is basically like well everyone's nice to them so i'll be mean to them and they'll think i'm special and it's just, it's just stupid <laughs> and then i was just like not being nice to someone you know so again no matter what it's hard to tap into that authenticity it requires this constant uh noticing of yourself like what are you, what you're doing so that you could say oh i shouldn't be mean in this situation it's not authentic to me i'm a nice person mm -hmm. i should just do what i do yeah i think I, so i think that's hard though to constantly notice what's happening cuz we cuz everybody scares us <laughs> everyone scares us and also that can be exhausting if you're always looking at yourself instead of just being yourself yeah. you know um so well, uh, i think it's a ba like a, a balance you know of reflection and 
for the reflection for the purpose of improvement, but also a realization I'm here, I'm whole, I'm complete right now. And while there are things I may want to learn to do or change, that's fine, but there were things in the past that I wanted to learn and change, and that got me to here. So I want to enjoy being here also. Like our whole life, all the work you and I have done, everything, and a lot of, you know, we worked, really worked hard, didn't we? It put us right here in this chair. This, this is where we are. <laughs> this is what we got to show for it. This is sort of a weird elephant in the room, but being a junior at college and starting to go on tours and having people around the country listening to your music, how did that feel? That must have been a pretty great it, feeling. It felt great, and then it felt overwhelming, James. It felt like... As I, I can't touched, imagine. As I touched on earlier, like this, like I felt pe- people didn't notice me. I wanted to be noticed, and then all of a sudden, everyone's noticing me. And I didn't, I didn't. It was overwhelming to me. I didn't know how to deal with it. At first, it must have been nice. If yeah, it's cool. I mean, it still is nice if someone yeah. walks on the street. It's, it's, hey, Mike Poser, I enjoy your music. I mean, that's the best. Hey, man, love your stuff. You know, that's the best. Um, but at the time, it was just, yeah, it was just, I, I, you know, when you graduate high school, kind of each year, more and more friends fall away. And yeah. then you're sort of left with the your real friends, I would say. And, and I was close enough to high school that all those friends, those like periphery friends hadn't, really, they were kind of in a gray area of, are we still friends? And so when my music became popular, everyone, out of the goodness of their heart, they all wanted to say congrats and talk to me and I just felt like stretched like I didn't have time to talk to everyone and at times I still feel stretched you know like and I I would say I stretch myself you know because every relationship I have I have because I'm in it you know I'm I'm deciding to be in it Um, but I felt overwhelmed and when Cooler Than Me you know was my first single and it became this big thing I felt like that's what happens when I put a single out. I had this, you know, I knew statistically and intellectually that artists put songs out and every once in a while they have a hit. You know, they're lucky if they get one. They're even lucky if they get two. I felt like, well, I'm different. Like I put my first one was a hit. So like all of mine will be hits now. <laughs> and, um, and then what happened? Like then you started. Then each song I put out after that was progressively less and less popular. And I progressively became less and less popular until I was left alone in a million dollar house in LA with an empty schedule and sort of nothing to do. And and, and obviously that's depressing, but because not it's depressing in a variety of ways. One is you probably had these, as you said, you thought everything was going to be hit. So you had these kind of preconceived goals and you and you spent the money a little bit. And then the other thing is you know, just this natural thing, which we were talking about slightly before the podcast started, I imagine you attached a little bit of your self-worth to those numbers. Yeah, I touched not only my self-worth, but my self-identity. Like who I actually thought I was, was Mr. Popular, Mr. Successful. And suddenly those things were gone. Like they did, Like they actually weren't there. And so I had to re, literally redefine how I thought of who I was. And it was the best thing that ever could happen to me. Which people always say after the fact. Yeah. But 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 as you could probably attest, feels really bad at the bottom. At the time I wanted to and I wanna be clear, like my bottom was still pretty high. Like 
I had saved my money and you did better than me then. I was while I like was searching internally and felt confused and lost, I wasn't like scrounging for rent or anything like that. So I was I want to make that clear. You know? And is that because you were also, I mean at that time you know, with the million dollar house in LA and you had saved some money, but you were also, I imagine, and I don't know this for sure, I imagine you were getting some work doing some writing for other songwriters. Yeah, I was still, I, yeah, actually that that part of my career was actually doing kind of well. You know, I had the, I had the song for were they Justin at, Bieber, Boyfriend, which became a hit, and the song for Maroon 5. So number one hit on Billboard. Yeah, they sugar. were, they did well. and But I I I wanted to be an artist still. You know, and I wanted to sing more. I felt like I had more to say. And so, you know, in the music industry, my my artist career was largely considered over. Wow, my songwriting career was doing well. Like people call me to write, but I didn't really want to write for other people that much. Like I wanted to write for me and say what I wanted to say for the reasons I, I talked about earlier. And um, I was just kind of, it was considered over, like, I was considered a one-hit wonder, because I was at the time, you know, I had a one-hit. Does that, like, like all the time people sort of make fun of one-hit wonders, Yeah. and now you were suddenly feeling it like, oh my gosh, I'm one of them. Yeah, I can joke about it now, because I had another hit, but at the time, like, I really, it, yeah, it really bothered me. It really bothered me, because there was, the, the underlying implication of a one-hit wonder is, like, they got lucky, they weren't really talented. Right, and they just kind of like got this, this whatever, this luck, and it didn't last, and it didn't last because they weren't actually good, which is how I, I mean, maybe, that, maybe that's just how I always looked at one hit wonders, but that's how I thought about them, like growing up as a kid. Did you consider that you might not be good at that time? I mean, you had you were well, getting it's really some... interesting. Yeah, I, I did mm-hmm. because actually, honestly, I wasn't good at singing. I wasn't good at instruments i didn't play any um and i wasn't good at singing because i just started singing a few years ago and so i looked at myself and i thought and i thought yo maybe i'll take this time to actually get better and so i i took a lot of vocal lessons i took a lot of piano lessons and took a lot of guitar lessons i'm still a beginner at all those things but i mean it's like a, maybe a little bit of a brag but i'm really proud like uh in January, I played on the Jimmy Kimmel show alone with me and a guitar. Were you scared? Not really that scared because I, I, it had been years since I started and I played a lot with my guitar like to the point at the beginning like where I really stunk at it. And for me to be able to do that alone was a huge internal triumph for me because... At that time, after cooling me, I didn't play guitar at all, and I really couldn't sing either. And so to be able to do that, like, it was awesome for me. It's awesome for me. So, so, so you started doing these things. I mean, one kind of takeaway from that is is that when you do kind of feel these negative things that are really not doing you any service, if you say to yourself, "Oh, uh, I, I feel I might be a one hit wonder," blah blah blah. That's not really helping you in any way to have those thoughts. Instead, what helps you is to say, "Okay, I'm feeling bad artistically, mm-hmm. so let's try, let's figure out some of these other skills in this art that I love and try to get better at them." And that's yeah. what you did. You kind of and you took some ego out of it. Like, let's start day one with piano lessons, and and so so going from a negative to and reaching for that positive is is a good a good start to get out of that bottom. And then what else like? You you would you took physical actions. 
I yeah. Well, one over over the real answer. There's other like kind of cool stories, but the the real answer is I, I believe in the law of attraction, which is maybe simply oversimplifying is you get what you think about. So if you believe you're a one hit wonder, you're gonna get more of your one hit wonder. But mm. at the time, like I drilled in my mind, would meditate and picture and visualize. I believed I was a one hit wonder then, but it was all gonna work out. And I believed I'd get a new record deal and I would have another hit. I really I convinced myself I would. That but, it was that it was on its way. But that would probably lead to action. Yeah. I think it if did. some people just say I want tickets to Mexico to show up in my mailbox, that probably won't happen. Mm -hmm. But if you say I want to go to Mexico and really meditate in it and believe in it and stuff, you'll start your you'll start to notice all the different ways. Oh, yeah. I could hitch this ride to Mexico. I just noticed it on the on the border at the shopping mall or it's whatever. It's more in your purview. Yeah. Yeah. So I believe in, like and logically that just makes sense. Without any spiritual woo-woo, it's like, okay, I'm 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 telling myself that it's on its way, so I'm gonna notice the doors if we want to use that man. Yeah. I'm gonna notice the open doors more now than if I just assumed all doors are shut. And and I'm not discounting the the woo woo aspect because I'm sure because you, you're, you're reaching deep into yourself but it just as you. Ma it makes sense though. Yeah, and I think I think though people can uh, many people when we just say the phrase law of attraction, people understand there's probably like a boundary there where. Okay, you, you, you're. It's almost like you're going deeper within to make sure this is something you will notice, and it could be because you're touching something spiritually inside. It could be mentally, emotionally, but then, like you say, you start to notice the doors more easily. Mm -hmm. That becomes a talent you develop for this specific things, these specific things that you want, yeah. and so and so. So then you were doing that, but then what were the actions that then happened? Well, and you could tell a cool story. If yeah, you want. there's a lot of different ones. I mean, in, in that time I had, I met this spiritual teacher named Ram Das, and he like, he really inspired me from just how loving he was. I had a meeting with just him and like two other friends, and he looked at us with these big eyes of like unconditional love. And he told us, he said, you spend all day deciding what to love and what not to love. He said, that, that, he said, that's too hard. It's too exhausting. He said, just love everything. I thought like... <laughs> like that's pretty, that's it, pretty good. It's, it's I'm going like, to use that. Yeah, it's so... <laughs> I'm going to steal it's that. It's so <laughs> simple, but like it's actually very, very profound. Like to walk out and actually choose to love what's going wrong. Choose to love what, what doesn't matter. Choose to love everything. So there was that and he inspired me. And so I sort of took on a bit of a yogic lifestyle after that because I thought, well, I want to have eyes like that. I want to... I want to make people feel that way. And I wanted to see if I could be happy with all, without all my stuff that I had garnered. And I had realized that, you know, from the amassing of my stuff, my money and my notoriety and my sports car, that I kind of felt like the same. It didn't make me less happy, but it didn't really make me more happy. And so... I thought, well maybe, well, maybe I'll try out have like leaving all that. So I bought this um, this Dodge conversion van. Like a, I think it's like a '94 Dodge conversion. In the back has like bench sheets that fold down into a bed. It's like a little longer than a normal passenger van, like maybe two feet longer. And I packed up like the clothes that fit in it, my guitar, some like my computer, um, a keyboard. And I donated the rest of the clothes that I had in my house, like whatever didn't fit in it. I just just donated, and I just drove away. 
from LA. I just drove away and um, I, I ended up in Utah where I had some friends there in the mountains and I was hanging out. I went to Burning Man. So I found like, yeah, I was like pretty happy that whole time. <laughs> so, so, so like what happens? Like, let's say you're playing a guitar at Burning Man. People don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. They don't know you've had all these, you know, these hits, you know, and you were working with all these great, you know, artists and performers. Were people noticing and saying, hey, this guy's got something? Yeah, some of it. So it's it's interesting. I just got back from Burning Man a month or month or so ago for the second time. Um, and uh, at Burning Man, there's no money, so you can't buy or sell anything. And it's explicitly not a barter system either. It's a gifting system. So people would just come up to you and say, hey, I want you to have this. And you don't have to give anything back. It's not expected you give anything back in return. So it's a a big distinction about Burning Man. I feel a misconception that it's bartering, you're trading. You're not trading. You come with something to give and you just give it to people like unabashedly. So one of the things I came to give with was my music. I had just rode around with my guitar on my back and... I'd ride up to people and say, hey, you want to hear a song? And they'd look at me kind of skeptically and say, okay. And I'd play something for them. Sometimes I'd freestyle something for them about like their surroundings or them. And they, yeah, they'd look at me and be like, you got it, man. You got to pursue music. You got to go for it. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> and I would say thank you. And when you were freestyling like that, does that draw upon the experiences all the way from when you were 10 years old doing battles in the playground? Yeah, it it, it, it's, it totally drew upon it. And at the time, it was a skill that I thought I lost totally because I hadn't used it in many, many years. And in this environment where I had no fear of failure because it didn't matter if I like messed up a line or couldn't come up with a word in time, I found I like hadn't really missed a beat. Like the skills were all there. You know what would be interesting is if you kind of just impromptu got a small venue in like L.A. or whatever, and totally like you know small audience 50 to 100 people and just freestyled for an hour (laughs) an hour i've never done that ever maybe i should do it at home just to kind (laughs) of just to kind of like build like really kind of muscle yeah yeah yeah, exercise that muscle in a really hard way yeah because you already have Mm -hmm. it right it's already built up but you you know like you said you you didn't know if you still had it but like just to really get uncomfortable with it yeah (laughs) might be fun (laughs) it would be fun i find that a lot when i'm camping or something i'm able to and this was the thing I first did. I was able to freestyle songs. So not just like, you know, when I was a kid, I freestyle a a verse, you know, just like a rap. But then I, I like stumbled on this ability to like, I could sing a chorus and then I'd freestyle a verse. And if I'm like not, if I'm not too far in my own head, I can remember the chorus and sing it again, and then freestyle another verse, remember the chorus and sing the chorus again. And really good, like it's a chorus that other people can join in. And that's that's sort of like the second iteration of freestyling for me now. Hmm. So so, so you, you went to Burning Man that first time, you've been taking piano lessons, guitar lessons, vocal lessons, and then and you're probably still building the career of writing for others, but then you, boom, start creating your own stuff again, which of course, the next great hit, which is now almost hitting a billion views on YouTube, uh, I took a pill in Ibiza. Ibiza. Uh, what what kind of led to that? 
Well, I actually, I think I'd actually already written it by the time I, I took off in my van and maybe even recorded it. And um, it was out. And sort of that core Mike Posner audience, maybe, um, I don't know how many of them there are, but probably in the tens of thousands, um, not million, like in the ten, there's, I have like this really amazing loyal group of supporters that, like they support me and they care about me and they're they're wonderful people and uh they had heard my recording of it and it was sort of like just known amongst them until these men in Norway named CB and very similar to Cooler Than Me or Gigamesh remix Cooler Than Me CB remixed I Took a Pill in Ibiza and the original I Took a Pill in Ibiza is slow it's good guitar I produced it and yeah, and that's one you specifically emphasize the 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 decibels of the lyrics, so the words come out. Yeah, yes, in that in that you're right. You did your homework. In Bam. <laughs> in in that album, I yeah specifically, we, in, I said to Tony Maserati's legendary mixer, I said, you know, to turn the vocal up three dB louder the whole album than you normally would, so you could really hear the words because the words were like kind of the album, and. Uh, it's easy to lose the words if you don't produce it right. Um, and the words were really important to you because these were, this was sort of like you wrote this at a time when you were somewhat distraught and trying to figure out your own path to happiness and it was confusing. Yeah, I was just, I was just trying to be honest about the, the, the period after Cooler Than Me where, like the, where I had to, where my self-identity that I created was wrong and got destroyed, and which was a beautiful thing, and I'm, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but just be honest about what that process was like. And um, so I, I, that album's called At Night Alone. It came out, and these guys, uh, CB in Norway, they remixed this song. And to be clear, what remixing means, means they took the, the vocal track from my original, and they got rid of all the music. So it's just my vocal. They sped it up, so it was going faster, and they made all new music to it. So they basically made a whole new song. And that's what a good remix is. It's a whole new song. And I think if you compare the two, you recognize your voice, obviously, in both, and the and the lyrics, but they're completely different songs. Yeah, yeah. You're like your original with the with the remix. Yeah, and like I said, this... this I'm a, like, I started out doing remixes. I'm glad we got to talk about that. Because a like, big question I always get is, are you upset they ruined your song? They changed it. Say, no, I love remix. Like, I started off doing remixes. I believe in the ethos of the remix and, like, you know, in, in hip hop, that's the culture of sampling, of taking old art and making new art yeah. out of it. Something like Andy Warhol being able to put the Campbell's soup can in his painting and make a new piece of art out of it. And so sometimes I'm Andy Warhol and sometimes I'm the Campbell's soup can, you know, and, and that's okay. I, 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 it's valuable both ways. And I, I would say all art, to some extent, is a is has remix aspects to it. Yeah, has to. And right? people, people, you know, there, there, there's a a book I once read, uh, the anxiety of influence, and it was about poets and how they didn't want to be compared to the prior generation because they're like, no, no, I'm not like Ezra Pound or whatever, mm -hmm. because there was a certain anxiety being, oh, you you got this idea from the last generation. But actually, it's a very powerful thing to learn from the prior, 
you know, generation and so on, and to, to mix and match. And Andy Warhol did yeah. that, and and Roy Lichtenstein certainly did that in, in in pop and rap is completely completely that. You know, not a hundred percent, but a lot of it is that. Yeah, sure. They, I mean, hip hop started. They take a what they call the break of a soul record, which was like a really cool instrumental part, usually of a of a soul song or an older song, and they just loop that part because it was it or it's something they called the get down where like that was the best part and they just that was how hip-hop started and then people would rap over that so then they put new drums to that etc um so yeah these guys did this remix of this song and that re that song their version became this really and i'm i'm in the mountains in utah with a beard down to my chest and my manager's telling me this this song is number one on spotify in norway and i'm like that's wild you know and i could sort of see it coming um do you benefit uh i mean i i guess i have to ask you benefit financially as that one does well yeah yeah definitely definitely um because how it works in how it works is uh the song usually a remix and, so, and, and there's nuances to it but if if i write this song i'm still the writer of the song and if someone remixes the song it's still in the law and like I said, there's nuances and you can do a deal however you want to do it. But in the law, technically, like, I'm still, still my song. And and there's a difference between a producer and a writer. So, like, um, when, when someone writes a song, like, uh, there's a wonderful writer named Diane Warren. She writes songs. She doesn't produce them. So, so someone, like, produces one of her songs, they get maybe a royalty um, and sometimes money in advance up front, but the publishing, the writing, it's still her song. So they they don't get a piece of the actual writing. Um, so like if if someone else sings the song or it gets put in a movie, yes, I still get paid for that. And so so you know alongside of all of this, you also wrote uh, a book of poetry, teardrops and balloons. Yeah, and and a lot of it also I think was kind of a, a outlet for you to kind of get out this you know sort of these truths inside of you that necessarily didn't that didn't necessarily fit into a song format like what was the genesis of of you, you've played around with a couple of different genres of art now uh-huh well i'd been writing poetry for a while like what's the difference between a poem and song lyrics great and, question and, and, I, it's a stupid question too no it's not a stupid question but i, and, but I ask it anyway and i wish i had a more concrete answer but my answer is when they come out of me they feel different and there's a little cross sometimes i'll steal a line from a poem put it in a song usually not the other way around um but i just kind of know right at the beginning this is a poem or this is a song and sometimes i mean poetry i think is a lot in a lot of ways harder and i don't mean more difficult i mean like hard like de- more detroit harder like more raw like more real because um you can just say it, you know. A lot of times in a song, I'm trying to fit it uh, to a certain rhythmic pattern or um, or rhyme with something. And not, not, I mean, there's plenty of songs where I don't rhyme or just go off the charts or off the deep end with rhythm. But in in poetry, I think maybe because I know less about it, I'm less schooled in it. Like I, you know, I haven't read all the poetry as I haven't read as much poetry as I've listened to music. And so I just I just do it, and um, I I love being able to express 
myself both ways. And so I, I mean, to really answer the question, I had, I had this like growing mound of poems for all these years. And I, I ran into a friend um, who runs a small publishing house and offered to, to publish the poems. And then finally, like, I, these things are going to have a home, you know. So, and it was this fun process of like going through notebooks and going through old iPhones and finding all the poems and which ones, like, it was cool because I felt like a real editor because I didn't remember the mm. poems. So I could actually read them with fresh eyes and know if they stunk or not. Mm. And just picking which ones didn't, in my opinion, and putting them in the book. And then um, drawing, the, the book has like lots of drawings and illustrations. So like doing that and nerding out with my friend Eric Gorvin, listening to Jay Dilla for hours and just getting the illustrations and drawings perfectly right. It was just, just fun. Just fun, man. And then you also have um, uh, a, a podcast that you just started and now I I actually listened to them, but now thank I'm, you. I'm I'm forgetting. I'm it's forgetting called the name. What Does This All Mean? What does this I all mean? I remember right? the name. Yeah. <laughs> I and it was beautiful someday. the last one about your your father and your visit to your father's grave. Thank uh, you. And yeah. and there's like you also have this there's like a musical feeling. You think this you're playing music in there. And uh uh it was it's it's beautiful. It's very uh kind of impassioned. And I wonder where you see your your podcast going. Because that's, well, that's an art form too. It is, and it, and it's a lot of fun because I feel I'm able... To, I, I, I record myself since I was a little kid. Like I plug my microphone through a couple of contraptions into my laptop and I hit record. And so I have this, this kind of superpower where I can just make stuff and I can make music too. So being able to throw all these these skills together is really fun for me and I feel like I'm, yeah, in a new medium. But to answer the question, um, I feel really lucky that at 22, I had all this money and notoriety and attention from the opposite sex and it became really apparent to me that that wasn't the magic bullet in life. And I was someone who, if I didn't, amass those things would probably always believe that it was the magic bullet until I found out for myself so I feel but really, could, could someone say oh it's easy for him to say yeah, now that he's amassed these things that it's that, not the magic bullet sure I was that guy mm-hmm. I was that guy that before mm-hmm. and I get I get understand being that guy because there's some lessons that you just have to learn for yourself you know, and, and maybe it is the magic bullet for someone else. I don't know. But for me, this is my truth. And so what happened was it wasn't the magic bullet for me. And so I started asking the question, if not that, then what? And my podcast is a chronicling of me asking that question in different ways. So, um, you know, starting with my father passing away in January and being reminded that I will too <laughs> pass away soon. My time is finite here. Um, I began setting up, setting on this path of like kind of asking this question, trying to figure things out. So one of the things I did was like I took um, this uh, self-development course called the Landmark Forum. Oh yeah, I, I know so of it. I did that and I did a podcast about that after that's coming soon. I also spent a week in solitude this summer where I had no human contact for seven days and I did a podcast about that after so what was that like um I don't think I could do that man what part of that James I never knew how long a day was a day is forever 
And, you know, I wanted to see who I was when I had nothing to accomplish. So literally, like, I took away anything, any, like, task. Like, I didn't, you know, there's nothing I could do to improve myself or work, and which was, like, my MO. Like, maybe became my self-identity, like, the searcher guy. So, like, there was nothing to do. And the first thing my brain did was made something up to do. Like, oh, I need to organize, like these spices over here that you know are or i need to like run up this hill three times for exercise so it made me think i mean for for i mean that's in like the first <laughs> 20 minutes it's like how much of my life am i creating tasks that i don't actually care about just to feel busy because i'm scared of sitting alone by myself in a room i think that's i think that's a lot of people i mean i think i think that's oh, it's maybe all people yeah i think what, that's definitely heard, true for me have you heard that quote all of man's problems stem from the fact that he cannot sit quietly alone in a room i haven't heard that quote but it makes sense yeah i forget who said it but it's a good one and, and it turns out doing nothing is maybe the hardest thing to do um so there were points of like really powerful insight and clairvoyance and um, and, and also the, really, really, really difficult parts of loneliness and despair for sure. What, what, like, like, what's the difference between being alone and being lonely in that, in that context? I think you can be, I mean, I could be lonely right now. I could be lonely in New York city with, with millions and millions of people around me being alone. You're like, <laughs> there's no one there <laughs> to talk to like right. physically no one there and then would that then trigger more loneliness like, i think it can uh, and 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 that's that i mean that's the question is that deci- and i would say it's a decision is in your own mind right? and that's a powerful to realize that you have the power to literally like there was a moment where i was sitting on the floor in meditation in despair and loneliness and was able to transform that into like elation like that i don't know i just sat there and like and realized like i'm alive and changed my focus and what my attention like it's beautiful that i have the privilege even to do this and that i'm in the mountains in colorado and all the things that are going right and that's like it's so it's so like we have the power to do that and I'm not a master of that. There's plenty of times where I'm in a deep hole and I can't get myself out of it. But I do think we as humans have the capacity to literally snap ourselves out of despair, you know? Well, it's interesting because I think I think it's hard to think your way out of despair. I mm-hmm. think that's thoughts are sort of like the last thing we evolved, you know, as primates. Um, you know, there's let's say you go from like the reptilian brain of instinct and then you know, kind of tribal behavior where where you measure your self worth from alpha to omega, and then you sort of have thoughts and reasoning and communication. But I think um, I think you have constantly put yourself in a situation where you're experiencing discomfort and how you work your way through it. Like you've exercised that muscle, because like you say, you start off with the twenty percent talent. Well, that eighty percent takes another twelve years. And then there's the next 80% mm-hmm. after that, of course, which everyone forgets about, which takes another 12 years and so on. It never stops. And mm-hmm. you kind of consistently made yourself uncomfortable. So you'll spend the, the seven days alone or you'll visit your father's grave, make a podcast out of it. Like you're constantly saying, what's, what's the action that could 
ugh, it feels a little funny, but I'm going to do it and figure out my way through it. Thank you. Yeah, and I feel, honestly, I feel lucky and blessed to be have the luxury to be able to do that, right? Like, the, like I got to take seven days off and and do nothing and be totally alone. Like, that's, that's a privilege. Like, most people don't have the time to do that or they have other responsibilities they have to take care of in those seven days. They can't just totally disappear. So what can so, they do? I'm not sure. You know, everyone can, can maybe figure that out for themselves. But I know me personally, I used to do these things. They became, for a while, my new fancy car. Like, oh, I meditate now. You don't. So it was like my new, like, jewelry. Uh, but now I, I just, I just, I really believe that I'm, I'm, I'm really blessed to be able to even ask that question and, and kind of explore it a little bit. And I just want to share it. As much share what I'm stumbling upon as as much as I can. I mean, what can other people do? I mean, I think they can exercise, like, like kind of the the obvious thing. They can exercise. They can meditate twice a day. That's why I do twenty minutes twice a day. And that people have always have time for. I would say. Yeah, yeah. And what's the, I think Russell Simmons says: if you don't have twenty minutes to meditate, then you need three hours to meditate. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um. Yeah, you have time, you know. You time you time like if you don't have time to be happy and enjoy, then what are you working for? What are you working for? Like what what are you working towards? Like some fantasy day. Well, in I think the that's future. a good question for a lot of people. I think people kind of have to to kind of find that authenticity in themselves. They almost have to take out a, a paper cuz they're not used to doing it and list what it is they they value what's important to them if it's not what their work is and so on and then try to figure out step by step how to What is it for you? I what's think, important to you? I think I like to tell my story and in such a way that it maybe helps others listening to it and part of the way I tell my story is by asking questions to people like you mm. so to figure out what makes you tick and yeah. to, to ask it in ways that nobody else has asked you before. Like, I'm hoping you'll come out of this thinking, oh, gosh, I've had lots of interviews, but no one else has asked me quite those questions before in that way. And it made me think of things. And that's that's what I try to do with each one of these. And I always try to make myself uncomfortable, as we mm -hmm. discussed, and and figure out how I can get through it. Where, where Like you've said a couple of times, every, you know, I don't know what will work for them, but I know this worked for me. And I think... Everybody always relies on scientific research to say, oh, what's a pro what's the solution to a problem? Oh, the scientific study says, well, the best scientific study is just the only one I'm going to do it myself. Yeah. Not with the one with 10 million people in it, <laughs> the one with me in it. And yeah. then I figure things out. It's actually out. really poignant, yeah. So so what are you struggling with right now? Like, what's, what's the next thing? You're working on so many different things. What am I struggling with right now? Hmm. I wouldn't call it a struggle. I'm, I mean, work on a new album. You know, so finishing that. I'm in a marvelous relationship with a woman named Megan out there. Right so outside. A, Hi, Megan. Yes, yeah, a new thing for How'd me. How'd you guys meet? To be in love is a, is a new thing for me. And I'm, it's special. I'm, I'm 49. Thing. I don't think I know what it feels like. <laughs> I hope you do. I didn't think... I didn't think I would ever feel how I feel, how I feel now. How'd you guys meet? We met in Utah when I was living in my van. But um, 
Like she just went up to Living the Living is maybe too strong in the door. Strong of a word. You're in the van by the by the creek. <laughs> hey babe. <laughs> Come on over. No, we met we met yeah, she was in Utah. We met and we were kind of friends for it was like two years ago. And it it took me to it took me doing some of this work to realize um who she actually was. Who she actually was. And then you just Start going together, and we start going. And took it was scary, and it was for both of us. We kind of made the space to to have a relationship, and then it's just like this this beautiful like thing is is blossoming and growing still. Well, excellent. Yeah. Um, well, look, it's I just want to tell the story. This um, I want to tell this you the story of this podcast. Yeah, which please. is that um, my producer or the managing director of this podcast Steve Steve Cohen originally wanted me to interview Jordan Belfort the Wolf of we had this studio mm-hmm. booked he wanted me to interview the Wolf of Wall Street you ever seen that Are movie Are you talking about the, your podcast in general or today Today Oh today and okay. we discussed it and we discussed you and I was like listen what Jordan Belfort's a criminal or he was I don't want to say he's a criminal right now maybe that's too strong he was in jail or fined or whatever I don't even know what happened but that is that whole movie with yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio and I'm like ah, what am I gonna learn I, I'm in New York City I see plenty of people who have been in jail all the time <laughs> so uh, here's Mike Posner who's done all these great songs he's been had his ups and downs he's reinvented his career many times and kind of been through all these things Let's get him in the studio. So I really pre- and then it was like on an hour's notice, he, he got in touch with you. He got in touch yeah. with me. We both converged down here, and um, you did all that research that quick. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. I knew of you before. Yeah, but, but uh, you did some deep diving, man. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't point out all the times that I, I was impressed by your deep diving. Oh, I really appreciate that. I pointed I, out one, but there was like, like three. All right, there good. was like three. Good, <laughs> three, three, three is the magic number. Um, well, I really appreciate it you was the, down here, it Mike. was the when you said I turned the the vocals up on the yeah. mixing of my album. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was interesting because you wrote about that uh, that you wanted the word, and it's this idea that with the remixing they took it back down because mm-hmm. the the EDM side became important to them. But you, but the words were so important to you because this was about a time when you were distraught, not this happy dance song. So it was interesting to see your opinion on that, but also your the conflict, the appreciation, and the fact that they. Hey, they made their own song, yeah, and it was great. And they did and a really good job. Man. Yeah, so really there's so job. so so two two contradictory thoughts could exist in one head, really, in one artistic, you know, m- mode. Man, I have a lot of contradictory thoughts, but that's okay. I think that's what people at the same time. I think that's what people need to learn is that that's where art's born from is this man and a woman is those contradictory thoughts almost uh-huh. coming together do you feel that what times you like you like curse to be able to see both sides of an issue yeah like, because you you have to like i'll give you an example you know what you know what else is hard too it's hard to participate for me i mean it's hard like i find it difficult to participate in a conversation without picking one <laughs> and i notice myself like like in a almost argument sometimes where I I don't even like really I don't even really believe that side's better than the other side but I just pick this side because the other person's on the other side and like that's how conversations work it seems like. I think that is a natural instinct to play the devil's advocate right but I think also it's a challenge it's uncomfortable 
to to say, oh, maybe that person's right or wrong. Like a lot of people are one issue people in the sense that they're on this side, and if everybody's on this side, they hate them. So, like, take a common issue is like pro life or pro choice. Mm. So, one of my um, in various things I do, one of my business partners is pro life. I'm pro choice. But then I go and see him. I don't. I never argue with anybody about their opinions because you can't change anyone's mind. But then I go see him, not just argue, but he goes out and raises foster kids who have who come from troubled homes. So he takes his views and takes an action that's very positive. And so who am I to to argue with that? Yeah. You know, am I going to argue about his opinion even though he's going out and doing? So I don't take foster kids in. Yeah. Like, and he's actually saving kids' lives. Yeah. And, and, and regardless of what he believes, I think it's admirable. Uh, when anyone actually lives out their beliefs, yeah, whether you agree with the beliefs or not, I think there's something to be said for someone that has the courage to like actually do what they say they believe. And I think people who work a standard, let's say, day job, I hate to put it that way, but they feel like, okay, there's the artist and then there's me working the standard day job. But I think anyone could be an artist in their life by living out bit by bit those beliefs, their beliefs. And, and bringing it a little closer to the, the front of who they are. Yeah, I mean, the biggest the biggest art piece you and I are working on is our lives. Like, at the end of the day, that's the big painting. You know, and each day we get to add a color or maybe erase a stroke here and there, but the, you know, at some point, that painting's going to be finished, but that that's not as it. Someone went to, up to Gandhi when he was on a train, I think, in, in South Africa and maybe as a journalist and they asked Mr. Gandhi can you give us a quote can you give us a message and he just said my life is my message yeah and he you know he very much lived by a code of honesty which I think you pointed out in one of your blogs as well um that this very uh uh you know he even wrote a, a book about his autobiography I think was the, the word truth is in the t- I forget the, my experiments with truth yeah exactly yeah yeah so it's very important to him to always live that way. Yeah, and he actually is very similar to you in that he was testing things out for himself. Yeah. All the time. My experiments with truth. Yeah. Right? How he phrased that. My experiments with truth. It's the only ones you can do. We don't know if anything else exists. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Mike Posner, once again, thank you so much for coming down here. I know it was like a, a one minute's notice, and then you had to no, like, it was incredible. take the helicopter I, I, down. No, I was so excited. We got. I even told my uh, one of my managers, Robert, I said, I'm really excited to do this today. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, thanks, Mike. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less, and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know, and you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.